then they grab on my AP then they classes. Right. Thermal should, problems. Should. I feel like love you. He's a computer teacher. So then when it's time, you just have to hit the live. And our audio on here is your audio set. Literally right learn. Right learn like, uh, should I edit test that yet? Yeah, that's fair. Thank you, Jesus, for fanless. <laughs> but then if it's too hot, then they, it happens is called thermal throttling, and then you lose performance. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to lose performance. You just throw off. So is that how all computers are made now, or like <laughs> just our like windows? Like. They
Good morning, Grace Life. Good morning, online, Grace Life. Thank you all for tuning in today. We're going to read our charge this morning. Can we bring our charge up on the slide? There we go. We're going to open up uh, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come. 
Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. God bless. Good morning, church. Let us stand together this morning and worship our Father. The splendor of the King, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide. Trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. To age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end, beginning and the end. The Godhead, three and one, Father, Spirit, and Son, the Lion and the Lamb. The lion and the lamb, how great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. Don't see how great, how great is our God. You're the name above all names you are worthy of all praise and my heart will sing how great is our God you're the name above all names you are
we praise you because you are great and you are gracious, Father. We thank you for your love and your mercy on us, Lord. And we thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, I worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again, whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, I worship His holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your slow to anger your name is great and your heart is kind for all your goodness I will keep on singing ten thousand reasons for my heart to find bless the Lord of my soul Worship His holy name Sing like never before Oh my soul I worship Your holy name and on that day When my strength is failing draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise unending ten thousand years and then forever bless the Lord oh my soul oh my soul Worship your holy name Sing like never before Oh my soul I worship your holy name 
worship your holy was crowned with thorns he is crowned with glory now the Savior knelt to wash our feet now at his feet the one who wore our sin There 
all to just be overwhelmed with that this morning and just really understand how much the Lord loves us and how much he protects us and he cares for us and as we sing this next song I want it to just be a declaration of praise and victory that he is our living hope and he has defeated the grave and because he has defeated the grave we have as well How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living God. Who could imagine? So great a mercy What heart could fathom Such boundless grace The God of ages Stepped down from glory To wear my sin And bear my shame The cross has spoken I am forgiven the King of Kings calls me His beautiful Savior. I'm Yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Hallelujah! Praise the One who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me, you have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Then came the morning that sealed 
the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me Jesus yours is the as he delivers this message this morning. Lord, you speak through him and let your word come to, come to life to us, Father, and let us leave here just renewed and, and just ready to spread your word and be a light in our community, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. So good to worship together. This morning's verse would be from Matthew, chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. You have, heard it's, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Challenging verse, no? You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We're supposed to imitate our Father. Uh, I heard a story once of a man who was going out of town, you know, on a business trip, and he called his oldest son to himself. Guys, you might have done this before. Uh, okay, while I'm gone, you're the man of the house, right? And I want you, while I'm gone, I want you to look, like, just think about the things I normally do, and while I'm away, I want you to do them for mom, okay? So the man goes away on his business trip, and then he comes back, and he talks to his wife, and he wants to know how his son did. And she says, it was the strangest thing. 
every morning after breakfast, he would make another cup of coffee and go into the living room and turn on SportsCenter. And he thought, maybe my son is imitating me a little too closely. But this is what Jesus is telling us about, that we are called to imitate our Father who is in heaven. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are, we're called to, to emulate or imitate God's love, and specifically what he's been talking about in these verses, what he is talking about in these verses, is God, the way God loves his enemies, right? Because God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, and the sun on the evil and the good. And so Jesus is saying, if you're... If you're one of my people, if you're, uh, if you're a son of God, a daughter of God, if, you, if, you're, if, if there's a relationship between you and the God of heaven, then there's a family resemblance that I'm expecting to see. Because God loves his enemies. I'm calling you, my people, the church, to love your enemies. And, and now this comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and uh, our church, we've, gone through, we've been going through the life of Jesus, and we did a long series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I chose this passage to come here because it feels to me like this is really kind of the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, this radical love that God has for people and this radical love that God wants his people to have for other people. And, and this radical love is, is, presses boundaries so much that it even extends to our enemies. And so for me, I think this is really the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, this is the heart of what Jesus calls us to how he envisions his people uh, living in this world. Love your enemies. We are called to imitate God who loves his enemies. And it's absolutely critical to understand this. If we're going to understand Jesus, if we're going to understand God's character, if we're going to understand God's, the, the gospel, the grace of God extended to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we have to grapple with this idea of love, God's love for his enemies and the calling on us to love our enemies. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you probably will recognize that, that phrase that Jesus uses. You've heard it said, but I say to you, right? He does that six times in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last one of the six. And so each time, uh, the way I, I like to think of it, each time he begins with kind of the common sense righteousness, the common sense understanding of some biblical uh, passage or some scripture and then he presses us deeper into what that scripture ought to make us think and do and how we ought to live. And so the common sense righteousness he begins with, you can see that in verse uh, 43, right? Uh, Jesus begins, he quotes the law, and then he interprets its deeper meaning. So in verse 43, he says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that first half of that, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor. That's a quotation straight out of the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor. And then it's all, if you know the Bible at all, you know that that's all over the New Testament, right? Jesus is saying that. The apostles are saying that. There's this call to love our neighbor. But that hate your enemy part's not actually in the scripture, but I think it kind of comes in just from like common sense, right? Doesn't it kind of just feel natural and right that if somebody loves you, you love them. If someone's kind to you, you're kind to them. But if someone hates you, well, then they get what they deserve, right? You hate them back. If someone wounds you in some way, it almost feels like you have to retaliate and wound them back, right? That just seems, in a common sense sort of way, that just seems fair, right? And so Jesus is, is 
you have heard it said, you guys have this kind of common sense righteousness. He's talking to his first Jewish hearers, right? Uh, you guys have this common sense righteousness that says, yeah, love people who love you, hate people who hate you. Love your friends, love your family, hate your enemies, right? That's, Jesus expects that his first hearers absolutely believe that. Whether they're Jewish or Greek, they absolutely thought that way. And I think it really challenges us because I think if we're honest, we typically think that way as well. There's a sort of common senseness to love those who love you and hate those who hate you. But Jesus wants to press past that. You've heard it said this, but I'm telling you something deeper. I want to go past that. And the deeper righteousness is the love for enemies. So Jesus expects his hearers to agree with that first statement. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And he's challenging them and pressing them further than that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus doesn't mean this in, in some sort of abstract way. Jesus doesn't mean this in like, it would be a really good idea if you did that, but it's kind of optional. Jesus is ab- absolutely and totally serious about this. He actually means it. When he says, love your enemies, he means love your enemies. Like read that literally, right? He is, uh, he is calling us. There's no wiggle room here. He's calling us to love. What does it mean to love? Well, I don't think he means uh, necessarily have warm emotional feelings toward your enemies, right? I think when the Bible speaks of love, what it typically means is a commitment to the good of another. A commitment to the blessing, the, the growth, the holiness, the, uh, the safety, uh, whatever it might, the blessing, whatever it might be, the commitment to that other person. And Jesus is calling us, love your enemies, be committed in some way as strange and not common sense and hard to imagine as it is, be committed, love your enemies. Why? Because that is what God is like. God sends his reign on the, the just and the unjust. He sends his son on the evil and the good. God sent his son into the world, though the world had rejected him and rebelled against him. That's what God is like. It's, it's, not, about, uh, it's not about getting a fluttery feeling in your heart for your enemy. It's about being committed, resolutely committed to their good. See, one of the problems with common sense righteousness, uh, that idea that, that I love my friend and I hate my enemy, one of the problems with that is that it, just how self-centered it is, Right? Because if you say, I'm going to love those who love me and hate those who hate me, you're making yourself the standard of who should be loved and who deserves to be loved and who should be hated and who deserves to be hated. You're making yourself the, the rule or the expectation. But is that a biblical point of view? Are we, aren't we all made in the image of God? Don't we all do the best we can where we are with what we've got? Don't we all, when we believe in something or we have an opinion about something, don't we typically believe that, like, with good faith? Like, we believe in something because we basically think it's right, right? So we've seen over the last seven months this, you know, there's been strife in the, in the church. I don't, I may, I don't, maybe not here, but in our church, there's been some polarization on, on how we view the pandemic and that sort of thing. And, and I just kind of wanted to enter into that conversation and say, do you think people on, do you guys really both believe on either end that it's a total conspiracy and that people in our church aren't believing what they believe about this because they really believe it? You know what I mean? Like, because they, they really are worried about it or they're really not worried about it? Do you, think, do you not think that's from good faith that they 
that they've thought about it, that they've read about it, that they're convinced about certain, a certain point of view. And it could be the pandemic, it could be politics, it could be just anything in your life. Don't we all know that we're made in the image of God, that we hold our opinions, the majority of the time we hold our opinions because we think they're right, not because we're trying to hurt someone else. But when you say, I'm going to love those who love me and hate those who hate me, I'm basically saying the only people that matter are people like me, right? The only people that deserve love are people like me. The only people that God loves must be people like me. But that's not what Jesus teaches us. That's not what the example of God's love for his enemies is. That's not what the gospel teaches us because God loved us when we were enemies, Paul says in Romans 5. Someone might die for a good man, but God proved his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so common sense righteousness, the problem with it is it makes it all about me. It makes it all about people like me. And Jesus says, you've got to lay that aside. He wants to remove that. He wants to say, you're not at the center of who deserves love. You're not the definition of who, who deserves respect and love and compassion and mercy and to be treated uh, with, in, a, in accord with God's desire. He says, love of enemies is what, what I'm calling you to. I, I read this great, great quote. This is by Thomas Merton. He said, don't be quick to assume that your enemy is an enemy of God just because he's your enemy. Perhaps he is your enemy precisely because he can find nothing in you that glorifies God. So don't be too quick to say, hey, I'm the definition. You know, people like different from me, they don't deserve love. People who think differently, they don't deserve love. People who vote differently, they don't deserve love, right? We're called to love our enemies and to, to repent of putting ourselves in the center of this question of who deserves love. We can even go further than that. We could say, uh, so there's a problem with common sense righteousness, but, but loving your enemies actually, in some sense, you might say, the purest form of love. Because when you love your friend, when you love your family member, when you, when you love people who love you, ordinarily, not always, but ordinarily, there's some reciprocal relationship. You love them, they love you back. You love them, they're thankful. You love them, they are kind and care for you, right? There's just kind of this cycle going back and forth between you of love. But when you love somebody who hates you, you're taking a risk, right? And there's a pretty good chance that love's not going to bounce back. Because <laughs> a lot of times when you try to love somebody who hates you, it just makes them hate you more, right? Anybody testify to that? So, so in some sense, we might even say that loving our enemies is the purest form of love. And, and again, you can begin to see, well, that's, God is love, right? First John says that. If God is love, the purest form of love is the love of enemies. So of course God loves his enemies. And of course he wants his people who say, I'm a son of the king, I'm a daughter of the king. Of course he wants us to love our enemies. And I think there's something sort of... Uh, devotionally, spiritually, that, that, we, that we can't experience until and unless we take that step of risking of loving our enemies. Um, if the gospel can be summarized that when I was an enemy of God, he loved me by sending his son to die for me and to bring me back into relationship with him, then if I am not a person who will love my enemies, there's something about God's love for me as an enemy that I that I don't really get, right? 
there's something, there's certain things in life you can only learn by experiencing, right? If you're a parent, right, you know, you, you might have a fur baby, but there's something different when you become a parent, when you become responsible for the life of this. Humans are absolutely helpless when we're born, right? There is an enormous weight of responsibility, but also love and commitment that comes along with being a parent that you can't, you can't really experience. You don't really know what it's like until you know what it's like, right? Marriage is like that too. I have uh, a college guy that, and his, and his uh, fiance that I'm going through premarital counseling right now. And of course, we're reading, you know, we're reading Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, and we're having all these discussions, and I'm asking him all these questions, and I'm trying to almost get them to almost to, uh, uh, just up to the edge of getting in an argument, right? I'm trying to get, I'm trying to press them and we're going to do all this work and like prepare them. But at the end of the day, they won't know what it's like until they know what it's like, right? And that's what I'm trying to, okay, so take that mindset and now apply it to love of enemies. What if there's something about the gospel? What if there's some way, what if there's some experience of or, or understanding of God's grace toward you that you cannot really wrap your heart and mind around until you take that step to love your enemy the way that he loved you. Does that make sense? There's something there that maybe there's something about the gospel that we can't quite get until we will take that step. And this is not any kind of like works righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's some things you can't get, you just can't get until you experience them, right? When you became a parent, you probably got a deeper glimpse of God's love for you when you had the love for your child well up in you. When you, be, when you were married, uh, when you said those vows, you, you might have gotten a glimpse of God's covenant, committed love for you. And I'm saying the same thing. When you love your enemies, there might just be something deeper, truer, more real, some way that God makes the gospel take root in your heart that if you don't love your enemies, you're not going to experience that. So in order to enter into Jesus' vision for his people, for, for what kingdom citizens would look like, for what uh, Jesus, this is, I think, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision of the good life. What is the kingdom good life? Well, if you step into loving your enemies, you might just experience a glimpse of that even here and now as we await, for, uh, await his coming. See, I think that's what he's saying in verse 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There's a, there's a causal relationship. Uh, if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, the result will be that you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There's, you're going to know what it's really like to be a son of, of your Father. There's going to be this family resemblance like I've said before. And that phrase, sons of your father in heaven, I think is actually a callback to earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bible open, if you just look a few verses earlier in uh, chapter 5, verse 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, be, they shall be called the children or the sons of God. There's actually, being a, a child of God, being a son of God is part of the, one of the blessings of the kingdom. And, and it so loving your enemies makes you a son of God. It, it leads you into, it walks you into experiencing God's kingdom here and now on the earth in your life. And, and, and I, this is an intentional callback, right? This is like a last time on such and such. Like Jesus calling back to the Beatitudes as a way of saying, 
pulling back to uh, chapter 5, verse 9, as a way of, of making that connection, that you're going to experience something. You're going to experience something of the flourishing, the good life, the kingdom life that Jesus wants for us. You're going to get a taste of it, a glimpse of it, when you take that step of faith and love your enemies. In the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, again, we say it again, the message of the gospel is the message that God loves his enemies. That he loved you when you were an enemy. That he wanted and he, he risked and he sacrificed and he gave his own son to, to turn you from an enemy into a friend, indeed into a son or a daughter. And there's something about that that you will experience more, more fully, more truly, more really, if you will take that step of loving your enemies. I read a, a story, uh, in a, it's actually in a book called Love Your Enemies. Uh, it's by Arthur Brooks, who's an economist and used to be a professor. And he wrote, uh, he's written several books, and, and he tells the story in his Love Your Enemies book of when he wrote his first book, and it was an unexpected success. You know, when you're an academic, normally you write a book, if like 10 people buy it, you're like, holy cow, 10 people bought my academic book, right? But this became, it was like caught on, like it was on the news and people were writing blogs about it and people were, it was just going crazy. And he was getting like emails and phone calls and invitations to be interviewed and all kinds of like great feedback. And then one day he got this email uh, and here's how it started. Dear Professor Brooks, you are a fraud. And he was like, whoa, <laughs> that's, that's not what I expected. And, and the guy went on for 5,000 words, which is about twice the length of my sermon manuscript, for 5,000 words telling Professor Brooks why his data was wrong, why the, his interpretation of the data was wrong, why everything, his book was just like terrible and, and the argument was totally flawed and all this kind of stuff. And have you ever gotten an email that felt like absolutely undeserved criticism, right? Like what are your options on respo uh, responding to that? Well, you can ignore, right? Um, you can just put them on blast, right? You can just ignore everything they said and just like, like go after them personally or you could go like this is my this is how I do it like I'm, I'm prone to write like a 10,000 word reply back to your 5,000 word email and show you every way in which you are wrong are misconstruing me misconstruing the data and all that kind of stuff and just like pummel you into the ground by proving and like being arrogantly trying to prove that I'm smarter than you right that's he those are basically the three options he saw he saw as well but then he he just kind of took a step back and he, it dawned on him that for somebody to email him and write him a 5,000-word re, uh, response to his book, then A, it meant that person actually read the book. Uh, B, it, it meant they actually, not just they didn't just like read the book, but they were paying attention to what he was saying. And three, that they sacrificed a lot of time to formulate that response. And so instead of ignoring or attacking or defending he replied back and he said, look, obviously we disagree about all of this. Um, and I would just want to assure you that I, this was meticulously researched and other people looked at it. And I, you know, all of this was written in good faith. And obviously don't, we don't disagree. But I just want to thank you so much. Because I can tell by the passion of your response that you really actually read my book. That you really actually took to heart what I was saying. And that you sacrificed a significant amount of time and sending this email back to me. So he sent that off to the man. About 15 minutes later, the man sent him an email back, and he was like, oh no, where's this going to go, right? 
And, and here's, here's what happened. The man was absolutely floored that an author had actually read an email that he had sent to them. And not only read it, but actually responded and responded with such charity. And the man actually said, hey, next time you're in Dallas, let's get dinner together. Which I don't know if you really want to take that up. But Brooks said, here's what Brooks said. He said, in that situation, here's what I learned, that contempt is no match for love. Contempt is no match for love. Now, how much more is the love of God working through us more powerful than, than a kind email, right? God calls us to love our enemies. And, and there's, like, Brooks wouldn't have learned the lesson that contempt is no match for love unless he took that step and responded with kindness and compassion and, and appreciation, right? And so that's what I'm kind of trying to get us to say is, like, unless we take that step, of loving our enemies, we're not going to know that contempt is no match for love. Theoretically, we might know that, but we're not going to see it. We're not going to experience it. We're not going to see it uh, play out in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And so God, uh, through Christ, is calling us to the deeper righteousness of loving our enemies, to set aside the common sense righteousness and to press into it. And, because, and one of the reasons we want to press into it is because there's something we're going to experience about the gospel by doing that. Now, naturally, at this point, you're probably thinking, um, well, but who counts as an enemy? Like, aren't there people that are, like, outside of the, like, isn't there, like, friends and, like, enemies and, like, capital E enemies, right? Isn't there somebody who's outside of the bounds? And I think this passage actually tells us we're called to love the people that we least want to love, or we might put it the other way. We are called to love the people that we feel most justified in hating. Again, if we look at verses 33 and, or 43 and 44, uh, just that, that word enemies, there's no fancy meaning to that or special meaning to that. It's not a special word that means enemies up to a certain point. It just is the most general way that you could describe an enemy. It can be personal enemies. It can be military enemies, national enemies. It could be enemies of God. It just, it just means enemies. It could be anybody who could fall into that category. So it's just the most general statement about the people that we're called to love. Anybody who could possibly be described as an enemy is someone that you and I are called to love. But it's actually more challenging that, than that because to his first hearers, Jesus wants to say, he's going to give them a couple of examples of, of people that, that, that they're probably going to say, well, certainly this person's outside, right? Like certainly this is not a person I'm supposed to love. And he's going to give them three of those, three categories of people. The first category is the persecutor, right? We already noticed in verse 44 that we're called to pray for those who persecute us uh, by the way, I don't think that means, like, pray about those who persecute you. You guys know what I mean by that. It means actually pray for them. Like, not pray, oh, Lord, I hope Jane gets what she deserves. But, Lord, Lord, I, I pray that you will soften my heart toward her. I pray that you will soften her heart. I pray that you will bless her in her life and her work. I pray that you will bless her family. I pray whatever it might be in your prayers to be committed to the love of that person who you just, just makes your skin crawl who you roll your eyes at, whoever that enemy is, we're called to pray for those who persecute us. And we're called to love them by asking God to get involved in their life. That's what we're doing when we're praying for those who persecute us. We're asking the God of the universe, the God who sent his son to save us when we were enemies, to get involved in their life as well. And so do you pray for your, do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for those who you view as a persecutor? Do you pray that God would 
you know, again, not that they would get what they deserve, but that God would show up in their life and bless them and help them and draw themselves to him. You know, certainly a persecutor's outside the bounds, Jesus. Nope. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We're also called to, to love the evil and the unjust. These are the specific people that Jesus um, singles out as the ones whom God loves. God loves the evil and the unjust. God loves the, the, those who we would say don't deserve it. Verse 45. For God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. God loves the evil and the unjust. And in a very concrete way, right? He, he raises the sun. He sends the rain. Very concrete way. Think how important the sun and the rain is 2,000 years ago when you live in a basically an agrarian economy where, where your life depends on the grain harvest every year. God is loving his enemies. He's loving the evil. He's loving the unjust by sending the rain and the sun. And he's calling us to do the same. When I was preparing for this message, I read uh, just a really powerful story. It really moved me. Um, it was a story that came out after the Bosnian War. So you might remember the Bosnian conflict in the early 90s. There was this, um, there was genocide. There was religious and ethnic violence. And it was just like one of the most horrifying wars. I mean, every war is horrifying, but it just was incredibly shocking and horrifying uh, that happened in the early 90s. And But this story came out afterward. There was a Serbian man who, as many Serbian men were, was arrested and then was never heard from again. And when he was arrested, his wife was already pregnant. And so five months after he disappeared, his wife gave birth to a daughter. But as you might imagine, in wartime, in a time of conflict like that, there was, there was a food shortage. Uh, there, the, the family barely had enough to eat, and so the, the mother wasn't in good health. She was not able to nurse the child, and so just within the first couple of days, they already knew that they were probably going to lose this baby daughter. They were, they were resorting to giving her tea because that was the only thing they had to give her, even though they knew that that wasn't going to sustain her. And early on the fifth day, they heard loud footsteps approaching the door, and they thought maybe the police were coming again. And, and when they opened the door, it was their Muslim neighbor. And part of the conflict in the Bosnian War was between Serbs and the Muslims. He was one of the few people in the town who owned a cow, and with him he had a pail with a half a liter of milk. And he brought it to them, and he gave it to them. And, and even though the other Muslims in the town uh, were, were persecuting him, telling him to let their enemies die, to stop doing these, and, and shaming him publicly, attacking him, for 442 days, every morning he came with a half a liter of milk until the baby and the mom were able to leave the country. And I, I like that story because it resonates so deeply with the Good Samaritan. Because all the people are doing, the people that you want to be the hero are not the hero. And the people who are the hero are not actually people you're totally comfortable with being the hero. And Jesus flips all of that, and it's a way of just kind of disrupting the way we normally think and see things and, and, and the way we judge uh, others and, and pressing us past into that reality of, I'm calling you to love your enemies. Just as the Samaritan on the road uh, to Jericho loved the Israelite who was lying dead in the ditch, and just as the Muslim loved these Serbians, God sends his reign on the evil and the unjust, and so let us to work for the good 
of our enemies. So we're called to love those who persecute us. Really, Jesus? Like, seriously? We're called to love those who we would call evil and unjust. We're called to love them, to be committed to their good somehow. And then this is the, this is the, the icing on the cake, the tax collectors and Gentiles. Jesus continues his comparison, uh, verse 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Remember, he began, you might, you might remember, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 20. He said, you need a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees, right? And now at the end of these six examples, he's coming back and saying, look, Guys, if you don't love your enemies, you don't even have a righteousness that's better than the Gentiles. That's not, we don't even have to worry about the Pharisees. Your righteousness is low grade, buddy. It's not, even as, it's not even as good as the Gentiles. It's not even as good as the tax collectors. You guys know who the tax collectors were, right? The tax collectors, the, the Romans ruled the area of Judea, right? So the, the people that Jesus is talking to, the Jews that Jesus is talking to, they don't run their own government. They, they aren't in control of, of the geo, their geopolitical position in the world. They were, are under the thumb of the brutal Roman Empire. When they go up to the temple, temple Mount, what they see immediately adjacent to the Temple Mount is a fortress where a Roman legion resides. And tax collectors are Jews who help the Romans uh, enact their rule in Judea. They're the ones who, for the Romans, go out to the other Jews and make the Jews pay the taxes that the Romans require. And worse than that, they profit off of that. It's their job, and they can skim a little off the top or charge the Jewish people a little bit more and put that in their pocket and pay it to the Romans. And so these are war profiteering traitors to the Jewish people. And Jesus is saying, if you don't love your enemies, your righteousness is no better than the tax collector. And then the Gentiles. Jesus, can we get anybody that we're allowed to hate? Please. To the Gentiles. He says, you know, to a Jew in the first century, a Gentile is, I mean, they're, they're uncivilized. They're pagans. They're unclean. Ceremonially, they're unclean. So for Jesus to say, you, if you don't love your enemies, you're not doing anything more than the tax collectors and Gentiles are doing. I mean, that's like, that cuts you right, that cuts you right to the heart if you're his first listener, Right? In other words, if you flip that, he's saying you need to love those people. Those people you feel most justified in hating. The people who we would almost look at and go, yeah, you should probably hate that person. Jesus is saying, no, it's... Jesus is telling us that, that if we search our hearts, whoever those people, those people that we have in our hearts that we feel most justified in hating we feel least like loving those are the very people that we are called to in some way to be committed you know pray for those who persecute you persecute you be committed to their good that's what it means to love sin you know god sends the rain on the evil and the unjust search your heart you know who who are the people in your heart that you think of as the worst of the worst you don't have to say it out loud it's okay you know I know, I, here's some options that, that I could imagine when I, when I preached in my church, here were some options that I threw out. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> uh, maybe in your heart, it's the BLM activists. Maybe in your heart, it's the Trump supporters. 
Maybe in your heart it's illegal immigrants. Maybe in your heart it's conservatives. Maybe in your heart it's progressives. But somewhere in there, no matter who you are, I bet you somewhere in there, there's somebody who you go, that person, I know, love everybody, but mm, these people are out of bounds. Those people are the worst of the worst, Jesus. You don't, Jesus, you don't understand. They don't deserve my love. If you look in your heart, you'll find somebody. And, I, and, and Jesus is saying, <laughs> love your enemies. He told these first century Jews, love the tax collectors and the Gentiles. Love the worst of the worst. Love people, the persecutors. Love those people who are opposed to you personally and what you believe. Find a way to love them. Love the evil. Love the unjust. One of my favorite books, I don't know why it's one of my favorite books, but I just love it. Uh, it's called Facing East, and it's written by a uh, Christian journalist who also is, the, books, the book isn't um, a journalistic book, it's just kind of a story of her life, but she's a pro-life activist and a Christian and a journalist. And so she writes a story in Facing East about her friend, who's, who she says, my pro-choice friend and I we're organizing a workshop for our group called Common Ground. And Common Ground is their group, and they live in Maryland. It's their group, like in the Baltimore area, where pro-life and pro-choice people get together to have dialogue with each other. And she tells a story of this workshop that they were doing with a, um, with a conflict resolution mediator that they were bringing in to, to help their, their two groups to be able to talk with one another. And she tells the story of while they were at the workshop, there was one person, to, one person who's, um, who, when he shared it, like really stood out to her for some reason. It really, like, um, he, really, he really stood out to her, and he really kind of stuck in her heart. And so here's what she said. He said, at the workshop, I was especially impacted by one of the people who shared, an articulate pro-choicer, a gay rights lawyer with an AIDS, lapel on his, on his pen, uh, AIDS pin on his lapel. And after the meeting, she talks about driving home and she says, I thought of my, my friend. He just lost his job. We're going to meet next week for lunch and dis discuss the Common Ground group's purpose. I wonder how I can help him. A chasm deeper than the abortion debate, a chasm of faith divides us. I don't know how to bring him encouragement. I don't know how to bring anyone encouragement without bringing them to Christ. That story stands out to me because, again, there's just people in that story that I think our tribe of Christianity would have trouble saying that person is my friend, right? That, that, that we would meet someone like that and hear from someone like that and then after the fact be thinking about them and wondering how we could help them and, and planning to meet with them again so that we could in some way encourage them and, and strengthen them. You know, having, I, I, I imagine that it might be hard to hear about a Christian having a pro-choice friend or belonging to a group that exists for dialogue. Like, what dialogue is there to have, right? Um, being moved by someone so, so different than you. Being, not, not just being moved by them, but actually wanting to help them. You know, being moved from, from sort of pity to a desire to, to love them, to be after their good. Because, but, but of course, but of course she's right. There's what encouragement ultimately is there to give without bringing that person to Christ, right? There is a chasm deeper than the abortion debate. There is a chasm deeper than politics that divides people. And, and, and the real only healing that's possible is, is for us to be united in, through faith in Jesus Christ. But, but I guess here's, for me, here's what I was thinking is, how is that person that you look at as an enemy ever going to know that God is one who loves his enemies 
if you refuse to love your enemy? How will they ever be, come to know the God that we know in G, through Jesus Christ, our Father who sends rain on the just and the unjust? How will they ever come to know him if we who claim to be his sons and daughters don't love our enemies, don't love them? So how will tax collectors and Gentiles ever be brought to Christ unless we love our enemies, unless Jesus' first hearers love their enemies? We're called to be people who love the people we feel most justified in hating. And lastly, we're called to a whole life commitment. This one's really short, don't worry. Uh, We're called to a whole life commitment to imitate God and love our enemies. Now that final verse, which we started with and noticing just how difficult it is, right? Be perfect as your, your Father in Heaven is perfect. Verse uh, 48, it wraps up our passage, but also wraps up this larger section, which began with Jesus talking about them needing a greater righteousness. He gave six examples. You might remember, uh, you know, anyone who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. Anyone who lusts after a woman in his heart is guilty of adultery. These different examples, and then he, the sort of uh, exclamation point on the end of it is verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's, that's kept a lot of people up at night. Kept a lot of Bible scholars up at night too. I think, I think the answer is when we hear the word perfect, we hear like morally perfect, right? We assume what Jesus is calling us to is like a perfect record in the in the the game of moral perfection, right? Like we, like we won the championship of being morally upright. But that word perfect in Greek can also mean complete or whole. And I actually think that's what Jesus means by that. He means complete or whole. Uh, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's, there's these hints, and, and he, he chastises people the most for being a hypocrite, right? What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who does one thing but claims to believe another thing. And I think being whole or being complete is the opposite of that. It means that you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. You don't, you don't put on airs, and you also actually live out what you claim to believe. So this idea of whole or complete, I think means to be, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, I'm getting this from, uh, from other Bible scholars, uh, to be the same from the inside all the way out. That there's no, there's no daylight between what you believe or what you claim to believe and, and how you live in your life. And again, it doesn't mean like moral perfection. It just means if you, if you heard what I believe and you looked at my life, you would go, yeah, <laughs> those match up, right? And that is what it means to be like our Father because with God, there is no daylight between who he is and what he does, right? God is love. And how does God act? With love. God is holy. How does God act? with holiness. God is just all the way down. How is God act? Always upright, always righteous, always just. God, God is, God, God does what he is. There's no gap between them. And so when, when Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, I think that's what he's calling us to, not a perfect win-loss record over whether you fell into sin again this week, which, uh, spoiler alert, you did, um, probably like in the last 10 minutes. So that's not what he's calling us to. He's saying, I want you to be the same on the outside as you claim to be on the inside. That's what I'm mad at the Pharisees about is because they're so, they're so, they claim to be so righteous on the outside, but on the inside, they're whitewashed tombs. 
or on the inside they're tombs, on the outside they're whitewashed. They're just not the same all the way through. They claim to be righteous, but they're not righteous in their hearts. They don't really love God. They don't really love people. And so what Jesus is calling us to is to be, to be the same on the inside as we are on the outside. To be whole in that sense. To be complete in that sense. To have a, a modern word, integrity in that sense. Right? Authenticity. You're not pretending to be something you're not. We are supposed to be one who embodies the deeper righteousness. So Jesus offers us, when we come to, when we come to faith in Christ, he gives us his righteousness. And he also gives us his spirit, which changes our heart, gives us new birth, uh, begins to recreate us from the inside out. And what Jesus is saying when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, is let that work of new creation happen. Participate with God. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be a person who loves your enemy since you know that God has loved you as an enemy. Be the same on the outside as you claim to be or as you are because of God's work on the inside. Be devoted to God from the heart and then be devoted to his calling in your life and doing his will. Now I know loving your enemies does not come naturally. I know it doesn't come naturally for me either. It's hard enough to love people that you're supposed to love, right? Like your rebellious children, that sort of thing. So loving your enemies is just totally unnatural. And it's going to be so tempting and so easy to, to just become defensive or to fall back into passive-aggressive behaviors or just fall back into ignoring people or fall back into just attacking people. But I just want to ask you to consider again, when God says love your enemies, he's not asking you to do something that he himself hasn't done to the uttermost. God did more than send the rain and the sun on the just and the unjust and the good and the evil. God sent his own son into the world that as we mentioned, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he reconciled us through, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. When Jesus came into our world and he went to the cross, he was reviled and struck. He was persecuted and he loved his persecutors and he loved us to the very end. He welcomed the tax collectors and the Gentiles. He prayed for those who persecuted him. Luke, Luke tells us, right? Luke 23, 24, that when Jesus was hanging on the tree, he prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When Jesus prayed on the cross for his persecutors and for you, he didn't say, God, let them get what they deserve. He said, forgive them. They know not what they do because he loved you. He loved the world. He loves his enemies, even to the point of death and through death into resurrection on the other side. We just sang uh, Living Hope, and, I, and I was, as I was thinking about that, I was just, I, think, I feel like a lot of times Christians come to something like the Sermon on the Mountain and just go, oh, it's so hard, I can't ever do that, and so they just give up. Jesus, Jesus was raised from the dead, y'all. The Holy Spirit is living in us. If God says love your enemies, we can love our enemies not through our power, but through his power. The Spirit is in us. We have been forgiven because Jesus took up the cross in love for his enemies. And so, so let God transform your heart. Let him make you through faith. Let, let him make you the same person that you, that you are on the inside. Let him make you that same person on the outside as one who has received love as an enemy, become one who loves your enemy. Imitate your father. Be perfect 
as your Father in heaven is perfect. Amen. Let's take a moment and prayerfully respond to God. I'm going to just give us a, a, a little bit of silence here to just kind of think and, and listen for God's voice, and then I will close it up in, in prayer. So let's listen to God and respond to God now. Father, who's making all things new. Help us leave behind faulty, fleshly, common sense righteousness. Lord, root out any hate or contempt in our hearts and let us be and live as your children. Let us be people who love our enemies as you have loved us in Christ. Change us and uphold us by your Spirit as we risk and sacrifice to love our enemies, that we might enter into the flourishing of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we have a, uh, we have a prayer team in the back if you are in need of prayer or you just want to pray with someone um, and I highly encourage us to take advantage of that because it's a it's a huge blessing and a huge gift that we have here and um, so as we go through this last song just be in prayer and like what he said ask the Lord to reveal to you maybe someone that uh, you don't think deserves love but um, just ask the Lord to soften your heart towards them and just spend the next few minutes in prayer How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon that cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished 
His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His and resurrection why should I gain from his reward I cannot give an answer but this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom but this I know with all my heart have paid my ransom. Lord, we thank you that when we were still sinners, when we were your enemy, Lord, you died for us because you loved us and you had mercy on us, Lord. So help us have that same love for our enemies, Father. And Lord, let us, let us have joy in doing that, Lord, to know that it pleases you and to know that, Lord, you're showing them the love that you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I don't know if we have any announcements, um, but we can do our charge. How about that? All right, would you mind putting the charge on the screen? I mean, I'll start. There we go. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.